you would turn to Philippians chapter 3 this morning, that would uh, serve us well as we uh, come before God's word and pray and uh, desire and yearn for him to work within us through his word this morning. So Philippians 3, 17 through through chapter 4, verse 1. In his famous poem, The Road Not Taken, Robert Frost penned these historic words. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. These words probably are familiar to you. They appear to be an ode to rugged individualism, they have probably been quoted in every yearbook since, since they were first uh, written by Frost back in 1916. And the thing about them is that everyone that quotes this poem and prides himself or herself on their individualism or on taking the road less traveled, every single one has gotten the poem wrong. You see, one key to understanding this poem is actually the lines above the section about taking the road less traveled. Before those famous lines about two roads diverging in a wood and and taking the one less traveled, it reads, uh, the poet writes, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Then he says, two roads diverging in a wood and I took the one less traveled. You see, the speaker in the poem is referencing his future state as if he'll be looking back upon the time he is in now. And when he is looking back on it, he will sigh and tell himself that he took the road less traveled. But that's not what he did. Previously in the poem, he referenced the two paths and they were both equally traveled. They were both equally worn down, as he said. So the road that he will say was less traveled was actually equally traveled as much as the other road. David Orr, writing on this poem, said this poem is not a salute to can-do individualism. It's a commentary on the self-deception that we practice when we construct the story of our own lives. And all of us that have quoted that poem have just played right into the trap. Well, now that I've burst that bubble for you, allow me to share with you that yes, we are in fact that poet. We easily deceive ourselves when we construct the story of our own lives. We tell ourselves that we're being true to ourselves, that we're doing our best, that, that, that we, are, we are who we are and there's nothing we can do about it. But the question we have to ask is, how does God see it? Not how do we make of our story or what do we make of our story, but what does God make of our stories? Well, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, he holds up two paths for us. Two paths he holds up. One is the path of Christ, and the other is the path of self. One is a path of hope, one is a path of destruction. One is a path of honesty, and one is a path of deception. So the question that we must ask as we look at this passage this morning is, will we stand firm in Christ and walk in his gospel? Or will we walk according to our own desires? Let me ask that question again. Will we stand firm in Christ... And in his gospel, or will we walk in accordance with our own desires? 
Let me read Philippians 3, verse 17 through 4.1. And hear the Apostle Paul on this. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So what path are we going to walk down? This morning we're going to see in this passage two paths, two destinations, and two descriptions, and then one conclusion. Two paths, two descriptions and destinations, and one conclusion. So first, two paths in verses 17 to 18. Paul gives us two different sets of people to follow. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you now, tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So those who follow the example of Paul and the other leaders in the faith that the church knows are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, we can kind of grasp what Paul is getting at about imitate me or imitate those who have gone before you in the faith. But what does he mean by this language of walking, uh, of those who walk as enemies of the cross? That's striking language. Well, to be an enemy of the cross is, is this, it's neglecting or it's ignoring or it is abandoning the heart of Christianity, which is the cross. And specifically, it's neglecting or ignoring or abandoning the cross because of what the cross confronts us with. The thing the cross confronts us with is an uncomfortable truths about ourselves, uncomfortable truths about human nature. And so the cross gives us hard to digest truths that we must make sense of in order to have an honest assessment of ourselves. You see, as Christians, we walk around, we, we sing about, we talk about uh, the cross as it's good news for us. Jesus died for my sins. And of course, that's fantastically good news that Christ died for our sins. And yet... For the cross to be good news for us, it must first be bad news. For the cross to be good news for us, it must first be bad news. You see, if we look at the cross and we see that the cross displays the vast reaches of God's love to us, to mankind, then we have to ask ourselves, well, why is that love needed? Why is that brutal death of Christ on the cross needed? Well, the cross not only confronts us with God's love for us, but it confronts us with the wretched state of our own sinful hearts. And so here's, where, here's the place where we come to. The cross is either deeply beautiful or it is deeply offensive, but it cannot be something in the middle. You see, for the cross to be deeply beautiful, it's because you know you are aware of the diagnosis of your heart and that you have veered away from your creator. You have sinned against him and you understand the cross as the means whereby God destroys the sin that turns you away from him and newly orients you towards himself through Christ. And we're going to look in a minute at a description of what that looks like. So just hang on to that, just get a basic understanding of this picture of what it means to be an enemy of the cross. 
So it's beautiful if you see the diagnosis of yourself, but you see the work of Christ in bringing you to God. It's offensive if you reject the premise that you have strayed from God's design for you, or if we fail to recognize that we need redemption and rescue from our sin, and from our misappropriated worship of that which God has given us, And so we fail to recognize the basic premise of our need for the cross. Christ confronts us with the truth about human reality, and it will either be, uh, in response to that, it will be deeply beautiful or deeply offensive. Now, I want to pause here for a second, because what the cross calls us to is this honest vulnerability about ourselves, about our nature. But that's difficult. It is difficult for us to be honest with ourselves uh, or honest with others, much less honest with God about the state of our souls. And we all know that. We know how, honestly, how, how difficult it is to be honestly vulnerable with others. And here's how we know this, okay? How hard is it for us to, uh, to um, apologize to others and ask for forgiveness? It's very difficult. Even when we can muster up the energy to apologize to others, to confess our wrong, we say something like, oh, I'm sorry that you took it that way. Which is not an apology, by the way. We, we have a hard time going before others and saying, I was wrong. Even sometimes about the most mundane, basic, pointless things. And so how much harder time do we have sometimes going before our God and recognizing and acknowledging the very grievousness of our sin against Him that would lead to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, enduring the cross in our place. Now you might say, okay, Stephen, hold on a second here. I get what you're saying, I can, but, but I, I, I look at it like this. I can follow Jesus. I can even worship Jesus without bringing myself under the microscope of his cross and what it says to me because what you're asserting there, Stephen, is something that is dramatically different and, 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 and has far-reaching implications upon my own life, upon how I view myself, upon how I view the direction of my life, upon how I understand reality even and humanity at its most basic form. That is true. You might say, hold on, I don't don't think we can go that far, Stephen. I think we have to go that far. Do you realize how logically inconsistent it is to admire Jesus, but to dismiss the claims of the cross? Imagine that six months from now, now, I know this is wild, okay, but just bear with me. I don't know if your minds can go here. But imagine there is just a terrible disease or virus racing across the earth, okay? Imagine it, it, it... in, in all seriousness, it's not COVID-19, but imagine it's something that's far worse, like Ebola, like 50% mortality rate, rate amongst those who catch it, okay? Yeah, it could be a lot worse than COVID-19. There's your happy, good message of the day. Um, anyway, but, but imagine that's happening. Imagine that, that Ebola is racing across the earth, and there, there, there's this race to find a cure, and a scientist uh, Finds a, finds a cure, finds something that can heal people of the disease or prevent them from catching the d- disease. This scientist, she would be applauded in the halls of Washington. She would be um, honored and celebrated in, on, on, on talk, talk news shows or, or, or late night TV. Uh, she, she'd, she'd be doing interviews. She would be uh, celebrated in ways like that. She'd be throwing out first pitches at baseball games. She'd be celebrated in parades, uh, lining city streets as people could come together without having to worry about social distancing for the first time in, it seems like, forever. But then imagine amidst all the celebration of that scientist, that woman who has found that vaccine, who has found that cure for the disease, the thing that brings about death for people. Everybody's clapping, everybody's applauding, but a couple of folks are clapping and, and looking at one another and saying, you know, she did a wonderful job. It's just a shame I don't need it. 
That's what we do whenever we look at and we, we think much of or even appreciate Christ without acknowledging the sinfulness of which He came and endured the cross in our place. In that illustration, we celebrate the person, but haven't experienced personally her significance. If we lose what the cross says about us, we lose the supernatural power of Christianity to redeem humanity. Of course, none of us would say that we are enemies of the cross, but Paul actually shows us things about us that might reveal that we believe this, even if we don't verbalize it. Look at this exposed in the descriptions and destinations of these two paths. Trust in Christ or trust in self. So Paul says, I'm warning you. I told you even with tears, those who walk as enemies of the cross. And now he's going to tell us, he's going to describe their state. Look at, look at their destination that he writes in verse 19. Their end is destruction. And then look at the description. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Christ is destroyed in the cross for our sins or he is or we are destroyed as a result of our sins. That's one thing Paul's holding up for us here. Now okay, let's dive into this nature a little bit where, where he says, okay, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Now their God is their belly. That is that is interesting language. It's something. The picture here is of someone who is continually given over to his appetite. He has no self-control. And maybe less than having self-control, he has no self-awareness. We see the overall picture of this makeup in verse 19 as we make our way through it. But this isn't just appetite with food, like their God is their belly, like they're always hungry. But it's an appetite um, that, that is the overall appetite or hungers of the heart. It's appetites that don't know moderation. They only know the empty promises of temporal enjoyments that our hearts seek salvation in. The temporal things we seek our salvation in, uh, seeking eternal salvation. And so we, we, we misappropriate our worship. And that is sin before God who has created us to worship Him. And so think of it like this. Let me try to explain it like this. In life as human beings, we, we are, uh, it is our nature to crave after, to seek after things like security, things like peace, things like joy. And so we seek these in all sorts of different places. These are immaterial, immaterial things. I can't go buy peace. I can't go buy security. I can't go buy joy. And yet, though these are immaterial, we seek our lives trying to find them in the material, in the temporal, in the visible before us. And so what we do is we take good gifts or good things that are part of God's creation that he has given to us to enjoy, but like a two-year-old who is given a toy to play with, that, but, but he starts to throw it on the ground and smash it into the wall and starts to break it. We don't know how to properly enjoy that which God has created or that which God has given to us. And so that is the state we are in where it says our God is our bellies. We, we, we idolize that which is before us. And we seek meaning and purpose from it that is beyond what it can give. Our bellies are our God when we pursue the intoxicating sexual intimacy that God has designed for us. Yet we seek it in emotionally unprepared or undeveloped or unloving relationships. 
whether it's in a relationship that has been hastily constructed for the aims of physical intimacy, or it's just a, via a computer or smartphone screen. Our sexuality or expression or experience becomes a place where we seek some kind of ultimate out-of-this-world sense of joy or even of security or acceptance. Our bellies are our God when we join the chorus of the world around us that prizes security and comfort. Infatuation with success is something that we give ourselves to and we hold it up as something that is noble and honorable, wanting to do best for ourselves, wanting to do best for our children, for our grandchildren. We become infatuated with seeking to do as best we can for them so as to protect them from the dangers of this world or this life. But it goes overboard when we would rather our children or our grandchildren get a good education and find a good job. We would rather that than for them to find Christ and have their life even turned upside down in pursuit of His glory in a place elsewhere around the world that is not as pleasant and peaceful as the United States. Our bellies are our God when we distort the good and make it a God. Our bellies are our God when we take created good gifts of God like medicine or food or drink and we we distort and abuse them in a manner in which we seek an experience that entirely removes us from the moment or entirely removes us from the pressures of today and we are given to gluttony or to addiction that we think can provide us that relief or that release from the pains and the trials of this life. Our bellies are our God when we are so consumed with our earthly bodies that we obsess over our health or our looks as if we are trying to build a shrine to our immortality, taking pride in that which others see, but taking no awareness of the soul inside that God sees. Why do you think the plastic surgery industry is booming today? It's booming as baby boomers try to fight back against aging and evidences of mortality. On the other end of the spectrum, studies are producing alarming results of disturbing evidence of the effects of social media on teenagers' psyche when it comes to their appearance and body image. As they are consumed with the lie that their worth lies in their appearance or their attractiveness. Our bellies are our God when we lose perspective of time and consistently place the temporal above the eternal. The tyranny of the urgent drives out the urgency of eternity. We'd rather experience immediate pleasures as opposed to the slow but good work of God in the soul. And all of these are simply illustrations. Illustrations of ways in which we can take good gifts like sex, security, medicine, food, drink, provision, etc. But when we desire them above our God, and we start to seek in them things they cannot supply, we are like a two-year-old given a toy that we are throwing against the wall and not knowing why it's not functioning as we think it should. The language Paul uses is in verse 19 where he says, the end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. They glory that which they glory in. Their appearance, their health, their security, their, their peacefulness, their, their safety, the success of their children, whatever it might be. To glory in anything apart from Christ is our shame. 
One New Testament scholar describes the state of the soul in verse 19 like this. You might hear this and be like the cancer patient who hears a terrible prognosis, but you tell the doctor, okay, I see what this is saying, but I feel all right. Yet this passage shows us the security we seek apart from Christ is a down payment on our own destruction. Is there another way? Okay, Stephen, you're holding up two paths. Path of self, path of Christ. I'm seeing what you're articulating about the path of self, or not what you're articulating, Stephen, but what Paul has written for us here in verses 18 and 19. How do I go from that path over to the path of Christ? Or maybe if I don't want to go to it, how do I at least kind of walk over to the edge and look over and see what this path of Christ might have? What does the other path show? Is there a way that does not lead to destruction? Well, the destination of the second path, the path of Christ, is something else entirely. We read on in verse 20 and 21. Paul, after having described all of this to the church in Philippi about about those who walk as enemies of the cross and their God being their belly, they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things, Paul then comes in with the contrast of verse 20 and says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The destination of the second path, the path of Christ, is something else entirely. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Paul is warning, Paul is urging us as the church to see that it's not a matter of just like our own preferences, but he says if you are in Christ, you have been given a new identity. You have been given a new um, uh, uh, a, a heart where, where, where these things are no longer a matter of just preference, but a matter of your, of, of your very state, of a matter of who you are. In Christ, you have been purchased in His cross. You have been redeemed in His cross. You've been set apart to find in Him that which is greater than citizenship in a world that is passing by. Roman citizens, which the church in Philippi was full of, they enjoyed wonderful benefits of, citizen, of, of being citizens in the world's greatest empire of the time, that of Rome. And Paul says your Roman citizenship is just fleeting. Your citizenship is in heaven. And so Paul brings something out for us, something of, of um, understanding of time and nature and even of ourselves. For Paul causes us to step back and see that we are citizens, as citizens of heaven, we are between two worlds, between two moments. We are residents here, but our citizenship is elsewhere. And we are between, these two moments we are between is between the cross of Christ, which is in our rearview mirror, and completion in Christ, which is what we still look forward to. And we are better able to understand life today by knowing that today is not ultimate. And we'll be better residents or even citizens of here by recognizing our citizenship is there. So Paul gives us a picture whereby we can no longer try to chase the moment and try to push the setting sun back up into the sky but to recognize our citizenship rests in a place where night never comes and the sun never sets. And the picture of that is the fact that our bodies, though they are wasting away, we have hope that is found in something greater 
than plastic surgery or fading appearance. In fact, I would be remiss if I just didn't read verse uh, 21 as we consider our aching bodies. Maybe we consider loved ones we have lost recently who are in Christ. And we hear the hope of verse 21. We are into verse 20. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So hear me on this. Stuck between these two paths. The cruel lie of our earthly desires in verse 18. The cruel lie is that eventually the body ages and dies. Eventually the party ends. Eventually the youthful vigor turns to middle-aged malaise and eventually to elderly aches and pains. Relationships that were once vibrant and passionate crumble into animosity and hostility. And the safety that you so desire for yourself or you desire for your children or for your grandchildren proves elusive as the next great crisis is always looming around the corner. The immortality that we live for in experience and in uh, seeking meaning and purpose in the things of this life actually finds far greater wonder in the life to come. You know what's truly astonishing when you consider verse 19 and then verses 20 and 21? The earthly desires, our, our innermost desires, they are in fact too small. Oftentimes we can think of uh, temptation in life uh, or, or, or the, the, the life in faithfulness to Christ and faithfulness to God's Word or life in uh, enjoying the pleasures of this moment, of this day, of this age. We can think of them like the old picture of like a, a devil on one shoulder or an angel on one shoulder and they're kind of competing against one another trying to get you to choose to go their way. When in fact Paul holds up a picture of the way of Christ that far surpasses the path of destruction. Perhaps in whatever way, shape, or form you have experienced the pain of that which you treasured or sought security in. Finding where you thought you were standing secure, you were actually standing on a trap door. And you're still dealing with the emotional fallout, the relational strife, or even the physical recovery. Hear the words of Christ, the promise of Christ that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Our earthly desires, our innermost inclinations, they are not too great, they are too small. As C.S. Lewis famously described this state of the human heart in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, Lewis wrote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The hope in verses 20 and 21 is nothing less than the hope of resurrection. It is not the hope and brief taste of it from our desires today like the sample card at the supermarket 
Remember when you'd go by and you'd pick up a little bite and you'd pick up a little bite? No, the hope that we have today is not that sample card of experiences that we might get here, but our hope is in the feast of the resurrection of Christ, which is unending and uh, unending and unexhaustible in its scope and of its glory and of its beauty and of its satisfying nature to our souls. Here's what I want to pause and briefly speak to you who've recognized that this path of destruction is a path that you know far too commonly. You've been trying to live life true to yourself, playing the hand life has dealt you. Well, look at this passage and see the truth uh, that truth truth to oneself reaches into eternity, either in destruction or in resurrection. Come to Christ. Look at His cross and live. Look at His cross and live. Look at His cross and see that eventually the bill comes due on our sin that we have gloried in, that we have pursued with the appetites of our bellies, but that which we gloried in when we pursued the bill, it comes due, and the desires that we have had can't settle up the bill. But in the cross, Christ has. Let us stop crawling through the desert of this life and drinking sand, thinking that it is water, and come to Christ and find living water. Note that in the course of just a couple of verses here, we have seen two glorious aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we cling to. We see two glorious aspects. One where he references the cross of Christ, and one where he references the Savior Jesus Christ still to come. And let us live in, let us rest in the, the, um, the, 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 the security, the sureness of the work that Christ has done. Not the work that Christ might do, Not the work that we hear He could possibly do, but the work that He has done. In breaking down the wall of sin that divided us from God in His cross, in order that if we will be honest with ourselves and recognize that we are enemies of the cross, and that we will turn from that, that we might live in Christ. And then recognize that not only does He do a work in our souls, where He begins to unlock the, the, the puzzle that we can't seem to figure out as far as why uh, life in my relationships, in my, in my interactions with others, in my understanding of self, in my seeking purpose, in my seeking meaning, in my understanding of why God has me here and why God has me doing what I'm doing, where Christ begins to unlock that and show us that there is life found only in God. And then He s- begins to show us that not only does He do the work in our hearts, in our souls, at the cross where He atones for our sins, but He promises to complete the work where He will bring all things into subjection under Himself and He will give us the joy of resurrection life in His presence for all of eternity. Where our bodies will no longer ache. Where the security and the meaning and the purpose and all the things that we seek in this life and temporal things, those will all be consumed and wrapped up fully in Christ where we will drink from the wells of His glory for eternity. So what do we do with these things? What do we do with these two paths? What do we do with these two destinations? Well, we have one conclusion. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. In light of the work of Christ and His cross yesterday and His return and His resurrection for our bodies tomorrow, well, today, we stand firm. We stand firm in Him. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled. And that has made all the difference. Robert Frost was actually on to something when he wrote those words 104 years ago. At some point, we do have to honestly assess the path that we are on. 
Look around. Take the path less traveled. It will make all the difference. But know that in actually taking the path less traveled, the path of Christ, you can be honest with yourself. You don't have to try to lie to yourself or rewrite your story in a manner that helps you to sleep at night. You can be honest with whatever your story is because you can look back further than your own life and look back all the way to the cross of Christ. And you can look upon it in wonder. And then you can look forward with hope in the resurrection of Christ. And in the resurrection we will know in Christ. So the question stands before us. Will we stand firm in Christ and walk in His gospel? Or will we walk according to our own wills? Let's hear Paul's urging once more as we conclude. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to stand firm? Would you help us to stand firm by helping us to look clearly upon Christ? Would you help us to stand firm by giving us vision of the lies of our earthly desires that we might be tempted with? And giving us the the ability to rest fully and to glory deeply in Christ Himself who atoned for our sins and who promises us not just a spiritual resurrection, but a spiritual and a physical resurrection. Where He will make our bodies like His glorious body. By the power with which He subjects all things to Himself. Lord, help us to be a people who our appetites, our desires for that which is glorious, for that which is beautiful, for that which is stunning, for that which is captivating, for that which is sublime. Help us to be a people who our appetites are not too small but are far greater and find their satisfaction in Christ alone. And it's in Him we pray. Amen.